the the approach to fiction that I want to talk about today um, is not one that I'm trying to convert you to. Stop writing chronological linear fiction and start doing this. Rather, it's um, it's a way to to incorporate um, a different gesture that can be very freeing, for one thing. Um, a way to uh, look into some other impulses that you have as a writer, and I'm sure you have them. Um, I'm sure that everybody here does research, for instance, for, for fiction. Some of you may hate it. Some of you, like me, might be addicted to it. I mean, you know, I can never stop researching um, to the point that I realize that I'm doing that instead of writing. That's my, that's, that's my, um, my uh, way of dodging writing, but it's also something that is so important to my nature in some way that I have had to figure out a way to, to incorporate it. Um, anyway, I, I think that we can talk about why people undertake um, these more segmented, well, let's first talk about the, the kind of, the, a title for the kind of fiction I'm talking about. Um, there really isn't a satisfactory one out there. Um, I saw somebody, um, and I wish I could remember who it was, somebody on Facebook, w one of my Facebook friends put up the question, uh, how many uh, books written in segmented design can you think of lately? And lots of people came up with answers, but I thought, what an unsatisfactory way to, to um, entitle that particular gesture, segmented or... Uh, written in short sections, or I, uh, there has to be a better word. Um, one of the few useful ones um, came from Madison Smart Bell in his text for creative writing called Narrative Design. It's not a particularly popular text, although he's a very smart and interesting writer. Um, yeah, does anybody know Madison Smart Bell's work? Um, I think he used to teach anyway. At Hopkins, uh, at Goucher for a long time, and um, wrote a trilogy of uh, Toussaint uh, Louverture's uh, life. Uh, he was the the um, Haitian uh, slave who had a, the only truly successful slave uprising. Um, anyway, uh, Madison Smart Bell's uh, term for this was modular design as opposed to linear. He didn't call um, the conventional, the most common approach to story construction that most of us use, um, chronological construction. He called it linear. Um, and he opposed that with modular. Um, I thought, God, you know, now I have to call these modules? Like I'm writing in <laughs> modules? This is kind of horrible. But at least I know what he meant, and at least he came up with a word for it. Um, so I thought, what, what are the things we're trying to express with, the, with this term? What are the things that this kind of approach to narrative structure privileges? Um, and I, I invite you, at any point you have a good idea, and also if you think of something later, I'll give you my email address, um, I'd really like to know your ideas about this. Um, it's an approach that, um, as that in contradistinction to the narrative arc favors arrangement, pattern. Are you somebody who is comforted by pattern, by visible order? Um, 
maybe this is something that you should try. Symmetry. I love symmetry, and I love asymmetry. That is, I love playing with symmetry one way or another in many things that I do. And um, uh, I, I have to admit, I think there's some OCD in my personality quite a lot. So, uh, so symmetry appeals to me one way or another. Um, the idea of the list. Um, are you a list maker? I am a compulsive list maker. Um, I hardly ever go out of the house without making a list, but half the time I forget the list. <laughs> it's just kind of a curious thing, really, and then I come back and look at the list. Oh, no, I forgot to get that. Um, segments, that's an odd one. It's sort of an insect word, but, uh, but it comes back to my mind when I think about these. Um, a, a story that can be looked at item by item as a... For those of you who were at the reading last night, I mentioned that um, sometimes works that, um, that are constructed this way are the better ones to put in your bathroom um, because you can, re you can read a segment here, read a segment there, you go forward, you go backward, and in a way they are designed for that, I think. Um, although I think the most successful modular fictions um, in a sneaky way um, incorporate plot or some sense of chronology, some sense that the story, that there's a story being told, that a story is accumulating here, that a story is eventually going to be delivered, but in a more sideways way than usual. Um, I, uh, I find that whenever I seriously commit to working in this modular fashion, I am immediately trying to insinuate a plot in somewhere or some idea that there was a story that that caused this this um, this crisis of needing to collect lots of pieces of knowledge and um, and eventually it's going to come out although you might be sort of reading it between the sections um, another thing that uh, that modular fiction um, permits more than linear fiction. Um, although I, I tried to think of examples of this, I couldn't come up with a whole lot, although I'm sure there are some, and if you know some, I'd like you to tell me. Two immediately occurred to me. They are um, fictions that look like documents from the, outs from the external world, uh, bureaucratic documents, um, logs for employees, um, one way or another, they borrow their organizational principles from something that has nothing to do with fiction, but they turn into really interesting fictions. Two that occurred to me, Mavis Gallant's The Assembly, which is um, the minutes of a meeting of an apartment house in, in a Paris um, neighborhood, where very slowly you begin to see in the middle of all this bureaucratic nicety that really what these people are about is prejudice and xenophobia and not wanting to, um, not wanting to um, allow a stranger into their midst. Um, and then, um, although I haven't read it for a long time and I I wish I had been able to find it before I came here. D.S. Naipaul's The Night Watchman's Occurrence Book. Has anybody read Naipaul? He's a really fantastic writer. 
uh, Naipaul, N-A-I-P-A-U-L, V.S. Naipaul, the one, uh, I think that um, Naipaul was a, a, an Asian um, writer, uh, that is an Asian Caribbean writer. He was actually, he writes entirely about his life in the West Indies one way or another, where there was a very large Indian population. And um, the Night Watchman's Occurrence book is exactly that. It's the log of a, of a, um, of a hotel clerk that ends up telling uh, an affecting story. Okay, so we'll think about what are some of the possible ways of doing um, a segmented work and what would motivate a writer to try them? I'm not going to be able to cover everything. Um, and I'd love to make some room to hear from you, so we'll just go as far with this as we can. One obvious one, and it's probably the one that most appeals to me as a writer, is um, the encyclopedia or lexicon. Um, and here, if you just if you think about um, the original object of such a parody, any sort, any encyclopedia immediately suggests the motive. Um, anybody want to take a stab at it? Why would why would you write uh, an encyclopedia of your relationship with your religion, for instance? Um, I'm writing. Um, occasionally, it's not the main thing that I'm working on, but I'm sort of keeping uh, the history of a Jew. I am a Jewish, um, but I'm a horrible Jew. I've never <laughs> paid any attention to being Jewish, neither did my parents. I don't know that much about it, but I'm very interested in it. And I happen to be married to a German guy. I am writing um, a, a novel about that, what it's like to be a Jew who's living in Germany a lot of the time and thinking about German history, thinking, oh, this is really... This is beautiful here. Sixty years ago, people would have been trying to kill me. Um, it's just, you can never really get quite comfortable. Yeah. I'll try. Um, there's something really attractive about almost journalistic entries as to when those reminders of that portion of your life, you're reminded of its presence. When you say journalistic entries, how are you organizing them? What are you thinking of? Almost as they occur and as I think of them and well, I, I, that is basically my method of collecting. But how am I going to present this? Um, because I also I, I know German, I translate from German. There are some <coughs> words in German that don't exist in English, or they certainly don't exist quite the same way. They're very, very interesting to me. Like the name, like the word Hof, H-O-F. Um, it just means an enclosed space. But just think of the implications of an enclosed space. Um, from a prison to, a, 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 to an area from which you can exclude. Um, Germans are all about boundaries around things. Uh, I mean, it's just the idea, if they saw the, an American small town like this, their jaws would drop. There, there's no distinction between one yard and the next yard. What we call a yard, that would be a Hof. In German, but it but it would look more like um, like a very separate space because it would almost certainly have a hedge or a fence or something of the kind around it. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of plotting a story though, and not having to have all the excessive transitioning that you would have in a normal story, um, is it kind of liberating? In a way to yes, exactly. 
Exactly. Although, uh, although you will want to have transitions, you will want to tell some complete little anecdotes, maybe, uh, or vignettes or stories. For instance, um, Hoff. Um, I wasn't planning to talk about this particular work, but why not? Um, my my mother-in-law, a very nice woman, but a fundamentalist Christian who is often trying to, in in the nicest way, remind me that if, that I have to take Jesus for my Savior or I'm going to hell, um, wanted um, me to watch um, the... Israel, the, the Memorial Day of Israel with her on the TV one time. And I'm somewhat resistant to this. I won't go into the whole reason why. I, I'm, I'm not a total uh, rah-rah Zionist. I'm definitely a two-state solution person, shall we say. Um, and um, fundamentalist Christian Germans really are pro-Israel. They're extremely pro-Israel. They've been in Israel many, many times. I've been dragged there once, um, my, my in-laws, that is. Um, anyway, I was resisting this, and uh, um, the conversation where we were talking about this was happening in the Hof, the Hof of their house. We were on our hands and knees pulling grass out of the gravel of the Hof, trying to purify the Hof as we were talking. And I am so bad at gardening, um, and I'm getting more and more upset. I'm, pu I'm pulling pulling good things out instead of bad things, right? And my mother-in-law is getting more and more upset. And I ended up saying something so mean to her that she started to cry and I made my husband mad at her. You know, I said, really, it isn't Israel that interests me so much as what happened, as where are all the Jews that lived in Europe before the World War II? And what kind of culture is there now? And, uh, and then she started saying the things that Germans often say. Um, I hope you don't think I knew anything about that. I didn't even know any Jews. I knew nothing, which um, stimulates me when I'm in a bad mood to say things like, what about the radio? What about Herr Gutbrot, who the, the, the uh, principal of the high school there, who was a famous Nazi at the time? You know, um, so it wasn't a good conversation. But anyway, it's incorporated in this. Under Hof, um, uh, once I had uh, many of these pieces, I thought, um, what is the principal word that represents any one of these things? Um, what are, I think that I actually put a few of them here. How do you spell um, that word? Pardon me? How do you spell that word? H-O-F. You know the, word, the, the uh, very common name, Hofmann? Mm -hmm. Hofmann? Uh, it just means a person of the court. Hof, um, means not only a physical court or a courtyard, but the court around the king. The same, it's the same word, um, uh, because a king was surrounded by, um, by his court being both people and a wall to keep everybody else out, right? Um, so some of the, some of the uh, subject matters um, that I could represent by one word in this history of a Jew were divorce. My family divorces almost compulsively. <laughs> but you can go back as many generations as I know about. There was a divorce or at least a separation, a permanent separation of one kind or another. What is this all about, right? 
uh, I wanted to talk about clannishness, which Jews are often accused of. Um, uh, I, the idea of Germany itself, what Germany, you know, when my, um, my father's wife, my stepmother, a woman I was very fond of, heard that I was, um, had taken up with a German, she told me that she could never go to Germany. And many Jews say this. I mean, still, it's really kind of um, remarkable when you think how long it's been right now. Um, so the idea of Germany itself um, is a topic. But, but when, you have, when you use this kind of approach, you can create a list of words. Uh, you could start with uh, your own list of notes about this and think, how, can I, where, how would I file this? Uh, you'll worry about the arrangement later when you have enough of these. But, um, but the way this uh, piece of work looks right now, I'll say divorce, um, history of in my family, or um, Germany, um, um, who, who would possibly go to. Um, I mean, there, there's a similarity in the way that I'm constructing these titles. But they can be filed alphabetically. I could care less about the alphabet. Um, and yet, I, I am going to talk about alphabetic, uh, alphabetical organization because it's kind of curious. I've never seen a really good one, but I do come across people who organize stories as A, B, C to Zs. Um, so uh, we'll get to, to that in a minute. OK, so why, why use an encyclopedic form? Um, First of all, it's an area that's so vast, um, I don't see the ends of it. It just, it balloons rather than comes to an end. It doesn't go like this, it goes like this, the more I think about it. Um, so I'm looking for a form that's infinitely capacious. I mean, it's, at some point I'm going to have to stop. but. Um, in the face of a flood of overwhelming data um, or overwhelming experience or overwhelming emotion or all those together, a chaotic complexity that I can't stop thinking about, well, maybe this would be a good form to try. And I, I always, as I say, I'm trying to insinuate a plot. I mean, there is this plot. Um, can this man and this woman, this German and this Jewish woman, um, get along well enough to actually have a, um, a marriage. Um, and what does this mean? Um, but I'm willing to go there sideways um, or piece by piece, seizing the most neutral and capacious ordering device of all, which is the encyclopedia or the dictionary or lexicon, whatever you want to call it, which also has the arbitrary effect, it occurred to me as I was thinking about this, of making all items equal. Um, for example, um, if you look up Adolf Hitler in the shorter Columbia Encyclopedia, on one side of him is George Herbert Hitchings, um, a pharmacologist who won the Nobel Prize for his work on chemotherapy, um, uh, especially immunosuppressant drugs for leukemia and so forth. And so. Um, on the one hand, it's uh, chemotherapy is this kind of horrifying medical treatment, as I'm sure you all know, but it does save lives. Then you, then you have Hitler, and then you have the Hitopadesha, 
a classic collection of Sanskrit animal fables closely related to the Panchatantra. They're like the Aesop's fables um, for the education of a young prince in India. Um, and shall we say that between the three of them, you can in some ways conjure a whole world? I mean, think about it. Uh, a chemist who comes up with a <coughs> life-saving um, drug, the most murderous dictator you can think of in human history, and animal fables to instruct a ruler how to rule fairly and obediently. And in some way, you already have three points that, that from which you could create a whole world. And of course, if you had 20 to work with, there would be um, much, there would be many more nuances in this world. Okay, so one way to do this is to create a vocabulary. It doesn't really need to be an ABC, and you can be funny about this. Um, I find, um, as with my telephone book, there are an awful lot of Bs <laughs> of anything that interests me, a lot of Ts, a lot of Ss, and no Rs. You know, I'm just making things up. But that doesn't bother me. And anyway, you can fish around. Where, where is a word? i got to have a G. i just got to have one. Get. That's the, that's the Hebrew word for a divorce. I'll use that instead. So, all right, there's a G. Um, the effect of the encyclopedic approach, um, it occurred to me too, is to make the act of writing a little bit more like endless research. It has the feeling of endless research about it. Um, so it's a, a parody of a scholar's life, in a sense. Um, I mean, maybe you are somebody who is so allergic to school, that's the last thing you ever want to um, think about. But maybe especially for that reason, it would appeal to you. Um, you are somebody who hated school, and you're writing the encyclopedia of hating school. And uh, that could be a really fascinating idea. Um, the writer is looking for answers or preparing to look for them rather than designing a delivery system for um, conclusions already reached, if you know what I mean. And you make that perfectly obvious in this particular choice of form. Um, encyclopedias expand, as we were saying before. They don't really end. They just come to an end. Um, they don't conclude. They just end. Um, the emphasis, um, and this is what, why it's helpful to you if you're not a very organized thinker. I'm sort of a I'm very willing to surf the flood for a long time. Um, but um, at a certain point, I do, I, I, I'm ready to stop doing it. So the emphasis in this approach is putting it all out there without privileging any part in an obvious way, not right away, anyway. Um, sometimes the motive seems appallingly obvious. Um, this particular piece is not so wonderful that I wanted to make a copy for you. Lawrence Norfolk is a, an English writer. Um, he was, you were hearing more about him 10, 12 years ago than you are right now, although I think he will eventually come out with a great big book. He is the, he's exactly the kind of writer um, who could be an encyclopedist. Um, and his first novel was called Lempriere's Dictionary. Lempriere was a real person, but um, this book is not written like a dictionary. It's written about a man so, so um, assaulted by the chaos of the late 18th century 
um, that he's living in, that only to create a classical dictionary um, gives him the comfort that he needs to, to continue living. Um, by the way, his, uh, he's really a fictional creation based on a real person, but the, the Lempriere's Dictionary. And unless you like a book that's so complex and convoluted that it will give you a headache, I don't necessarily recommend it. But you can find it in a used bookstore and look at it. It might be interesting. Anyway, what, what's interesting is to realize that writing this big, fat, very convoluted novel about kidnapping by pirates and robots uh, or automatons who, um, are, who oppose, who, who want to interfere with history, and plotters and so forth. I mean, it's just a very complex novel um, in a way that was uh, more popular. I mean, right now I think that a, that a more streamlined novel is more in fashion. But, uh, but Lempriere's novel, uh, Lempriere's Dictionary did well or was certainly highly praised when it came out. So for that reason, Lawrence Norfolk got the opportunity. He was asked by a magazine to go to Bosnia in the middle of the Yugoslavian War. Is it, you're, all, you're all younger than I am, but you remember, you, do you know what I'm talking about in the mid-90s? Um, so they send this, this very complex thinker to, to report on a war where he's really afraid for his life. Um, and what does he do? He doesn't have the, 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 the space um, I mean, he doesn't have the time, the space, or the will to, to write a plot about this. It's war. Just think about it. Um, what is war? Um, war is disparate, overwhelming, senseless, uncontrollable, um, and, and horribly frightening. Uh, it's divisible into any number of small units, some of which show heroism, reason, uh, humanity, self-discipline, good sense, self-sacrifice, and so forth. But taken as a whole, um, I defy one person in a three-week visit to get the, the to to get it down, if you know what I mean. So he resorted to uh, a Bosnian alphabet. This came out in Granta, and as I say, I don't think it's his best work, and I don't think he does either. It starts with A for apology. He writes. A should be for alphabet, the device I am resorting to in some desperation to structure my thoughts on this subject, my relations vis-a-vis -vis two Yugoslavian wars. This is my fourth attempt. You often hear that from people who are, who are working with the encyclopedic form. I'll come back to that. This is my fourth attempt at organizing the material. The deadline looms, and the only virtue of this catch-all structure is its transparency. An ABC, you know the writer's in trouble. So a preemptive strike on exaggerated expectations. A in this instance must be for apology. Um, I was going to read just one more little section, so, but I will send all of these around, and anybody wants to look more closely may do so. Um, as I say, I wouldn't particularly recommend this piece of work, but I thought it was so interesting that exactly because he's working with one of those subjects that will not stay, that will not behave for you, that is too big, too frightening, too catastrophic, too... Um, too overwhelming, and that you just don't feel you can 
swallow, you can comprehend, comprehend in the etymological meaning of the word. G, gun, G, rather obviously is for gun. I have handled guns, am reasonably at ease with the idea of a device for firing projectiles. The guns in Bosnia are different. Their stocks have not been lovingly polished. Their barrels are unoiled. The metal they are made from is black and scarred with little nicks and scratches. Almost everyone I meet here carries a gun, but they are careless of them, waving them about, dumping them roughly on the ground. These are not treasured possessions, and there is nothing iconic about them. They would look ridiculous, hung above a fireplace. It is apparent at a glance that a Zastava Kalashnikov was never intended for pheasant. These guns are rough tools for the job of shooting people. Um, but some of them are, more, are about encounters. Some of them are about being lost. Some of them are about um, having a drink with, uh, with um, someone who later becomes an enemy and so on. Um, okay. Um, he doesn't have... Um, he can't really engage the, that massive architectural sense that he uses on his novels. But he's still, um, he's still an architect when he uh, sits down to write. So this is what he came up with. And an alphabet has to suffice. Um, I think war was just too much for him. And um, this is what he came up with. Uh, for some of us, probably all of us, if we think about it, the alphabet itself is full of hidden meanings, sensory associations, and compulsions. Um, I wanted to read you this poem. I'll read you um, Rambeau's Voyelle. Do how many people know this poem? Rambeau, <laughs> good for you. Rambeau, Arthur Rambeau was this uh, visionary, very strange, way, way before his time, French poet, um, who stopped, I mean, he finally gave up his poetic career at the age of 21, if I remember <coughs> right. Uh, so all this brilliant work came before that. Um, this is just a poem about vowels, what they, what they made him think of. And I would like to remind you, it's a hard poem to translate because A in French is A, A, E is E, I is E, and U is U, O, O, um, and so on. But we'll, we'll live with that, because this is so surreal. Yeah. A, black, E, white, I, red, U, green, O, blue, vowels. I shall tell one day of your mysterious origins. A, black, velvety jacket of brilliant flies which buzz around cruel smells gulfs of shadow, E, whiteness of vapors and of tents, lances of proud glaciers, white kings, shivers of cow parsley, I, purples, spat blood, smile of beautiful lips and anger in the raptures of penitence, U, waves, divine shudderings of a viridian sea, the peace of pastures dotted with animals, the peace of the furrows which alchemy prints on broad, studious foreheads. Oh, sublime trumpet full of strange, piercing sounds, silences crossed by worlds and by angels. Oh, the omega, the violet ray of his eyes. 
That's an experience, isn't it? Um, my friend Janet Kaufman, um, a fiction writer who was, she kind of had the peak of her career as a fiction writer in the 80s with a novel uh, called Collaborators. You know her work? She, uh, she came from a Mennonite background um, just up the road from where I was growing up, around Lancaster, Pennsylvania, but a totally different kind of childhood. Um, and she still lives on a farm. Um, she's, she is such a virtuous person. Um, so um, automatically orders her life according to what she thinks is right, that she didn't uh, think twice about stopping writing except to serve environmental causes. Uh, you know, she got annoyed at the amount of um, hog shit that was being poured into her stream. And she started a little organization because of that, and this just ballooned. Now she still writes, but she writes about environmental causes. She's also a poet. Anyway, um, I'm going to pass this around. I hope nobody here gets mad at me. Um, I, when I was teaching a forms class at Western, one of my students, and a very good student, said, she ruined the alphabet for me. I can never go near the alphabet again. Because um, this is Janet, her meditation on letters as sexual beings that connect to other letters. So it's, uh, it's about um, conjoining, about the, the conjoining effect of letters. And she writes about them as if they were real um, 26 acts in 26 letters. It comes from her collection, Characters on the Loose, where she's uh, moving away from the, the more plot-based um, form of collaborators, a novel, uh, to a collection of stories that's really thinking about the elements of fiction in a more abstract way, but bringing them to life in the way that she always brought everything to life. Uh, Janet Kaufman. K-A-U-F-F-M-A-N, in her case. Um, so I'm going to pass this around, and you can look at it. What can I read that will, that will make your ears flame? Let's see. Um, some of them are hilarious, by the way. And the, the strange thing is, the overall effect of the book for me is innocence. Um, sex... Sex, when it's not cruel, is, has a sort of innocence about it. And after all, these aren't real people. They're letters. So there's something kind of wonderful and joyous about it. M and N are lovers. What you see are their hips and legs only, like the bottom half of mannequins for demonstration. These lovers love to walk. They are in love with moving their legs, walking and running, as much as they are in love with entwining their legs in lovemaking, or looping their legs around the other's chest, or just resting them thigh touching thigh through the night. They have breasts and hair, arms, faces, and skin all over too, but their legs mostly arouse them, define them, and pace out the ongoing measure of them. M is not male, as you might at first think. No, M is female. See the legs. Between M's two legs, that's her crotch, her pubic hair, and N. Well, it's more of a side view of him. His two legs and the uprising stalk of his penis out in front as he strides, and on and on. I mean, this is the most fun thing to read, if you're in the right mood. So I'm going to just pass this around. But um, that this was her exploration of of the alphabet 
after all when somebody says to you so you're your family you're the first writer in it what is it about it about writing that attracted you and you're thinking what can i say what can i say what what is the basic unit of the thing that i do i usually say words and then i start trying to explain to people why words any word entranced me but you know it was actually letters before i could even read i was so thrilled i was so happy when my mother read to me that i would take the book and i would look at that those black things on there and i would just rub them against me you know i just i wanted to have the have the um power to penetrate these black marks on paper um and and then suddenly i did i really can't remember learning to read and i wasn't particularly fast at this just average i think but it was but i knew what that I wanted these little figures, these characters. And actually, it's one of, my, uh, one of the things that I'm curious about that I haven't really had time to research yet. Where do letters really come from? Um, I heard something on NPR lately that uh, most of our letters actually descend from um, cuneiform or from hieroglyphics um, that were little uh, ideograms of uh, of an action or a, or a character or, um, or or a profession or a, la- a kind of labor or something like that, and they then be- began to be like the initial letter of that thing. Um, but behind them there are pictures. I just I would really like to know about that. Anyway, um, Janet was interested in that. She just made up her own, and uh, and that's an amazing work that's not like anything else. Um, so it's a meditation on the carnal implications of letters, let's say. Okay. The encyclopedic lends itself, especially though, I think, to the vastitudes of religious feeling, reference, religious reference, that is, religious history. I mean, when you think about, I don't know how many of you, there are some people who are, who are lucky enough to not worry about religion at all. <laughs> Or maybe that's not lucky. I don't know. But most of us are trying to figure this thing out one way or another. And uh, uh, when I think about the, um, the principal encyclopedic works of the last 25 years, um, religion is often part of the, um, part of the subject matters or, or the subject matter. Um, a novel that uh, I think especially... Um, writers who are interested in innovative work or fascinated by is Milorad Pavic's Dictionary of the Khazars. Uh, um, that, that word is spelled K-H-A-Z-A-R-S. Um, ka- uh, Dictionary of the Khazars. K-H-A-Z-A-R-S. This is so much his most famous work that um, the easiest way to find it would probably be to just look up Pavic, whose name is spelled P-A-V-I-C, with a C with a little mark over it. He was Serbian. Um, it's funny. I mean, I had uh, already an association with the Khazars because every um, every Jew whose family originated in Central Europe 
likes to pretend that they were descended from the Khazars. The Khazars were uh, maybe partly mythical people who lived on the shore of the Black Sea, um, who supposedly in the ninth century had a very enlightened king who wanted to choose his religion. He was, not got, he was ready to, be, um, to, to go to one of the major religions from paganism. Uh, we have to have a better religion than this, but should it be Muslim? Should it be Jewish? Should it be Christian? So he supposedly had wise men um, come to the court and make their cases. And that's exactly what the story of this book is. Um, it's done in, um, in the form of three overlapping dictionaries um, that, that finally are such a swirl. They are, I mean, it's not going to make it any easier for you or simpler for you to figure out where the three religions fit together. Um, but it's full, of, um, it's full of exactly the kinds of mixed approaches to narrative that the encyclopedic form is best at accommodating. That is, there are little stories. There are stories inside of stories. Um, there are stories that are interrupted to tell another story, and then that story comes back a little bit later. The stories might tie together. Um, there are tales. There are philosophical disquisitions. There are dialogues. Um, if anybody's ever looked at the Talmud, mostly it's very boring, but sometimes it... Uh, but there's something kind of wonderful about it, too. I mean, it's in the, the, the Talmud and some of the um, um, commentaries on it appear in the form of dialogues. Um, ben so-and-so says one thing, and Ben so-and-so says another. And, um, um, and this, this book, which is not huge, it's not as fat as you would fear, um, uh, incorporates all of these gestures and is really a wonderful example of um, the encyclopedic. But it doesn't, it, it, it seems perfectly natural when it's about religion one way or another. By the way, supposedly the Jews won that contest and the Khazars became Jewish. And this is what, uh, why Jews are so um, fond of the fantasy that they came from there and that they are of that people. I can't, I am not sure. But I have it too. I have it too, and my dad had it. Okay, all right. So let's stop for a minute. Here's an axiom for you. Um, for, I mentioned this at my reading last night. In a way, all form comes down to, to gestures. Um, the list, um, that is thing, 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 thing. And the things are different one way or another. Um, the sheer muchness manyness, multiplicity of the world, all of its variation. Um, and the refrain where um, the, in a way there is some sort of um, message. It might be the message of not knowing. It might be the question itself. But um, uh, I mean, I'm sure that all of you who are working hard at writing have come to understand that writing is not really about meaning. There are, if, you really, if you understand everything, there are easier ways to get it across. Writing, creative writing is for people who are trying to figure out things, not for people who have already figured them out completely. Um, anyway, an encyclopedic form or um, an anatomy is another word um, that's sometimes used for this. Um, 
a modular form instead of a chronology suggests list and refrain at once. Just because you have a segment, that's a refrain already. There's, there, there, are, there are eight of these. Eight of what? Um, whatever they are, uh, the categories themselves that, they, that suggest repetition. So it's a way of playing with variation and repetition, difference and sameness um, in a single form. Um, you might say completeness um, and inescapability. Um, there's also something, um, whenever you say, all right, I'm, this is a picture of the complete world, there's something a little bit frightening about that. Um, for me, it's not as claustrophobic as, um, as the more conventional kind of arc, and yet um, it does suggest being in some way um, lost on a sea of information, lost on a sea of, of, of the incomprehensible, shall we say. Okay. Um, why do we have this list-making impulse in the first place? I think it's kind of an interesting question. Um, I had a, a philosophy teacher named George Geiger. I can remember him saying, where does this idea of Trinity come from anyway? Why three? Why not two and seven eighths? And I thought, good point, good point. So exhaustive lists. <coughs> Just think of, I mean, there was something um, in the medieval scholastic mind that really, uh, really loved this gesture. And I just thought of a few. Um, the four questions of Passover. Why is this night different from all other nights? And so forth. The three persons of God and Trinity. That's the one that George Geiger had to take on. The seven sorrows of Mary in uh, Catholic catechism. The five pillars of Islam. Why? Why? Is there anything really sacred about these numbers? Anybody want to answer that question? Um, it's, I think it's the brain more than the, more than the information itself. Patterns <coughs> like this are comforting, and numbers especially with their clean abstraction are so comforting. Plus it helps you remember, but it's also um, kind of inescapable. Five? Oh my God, I can't remember the fifth. What is it? I'm going straight to hell. Um, it's a, so, so let's look now at the solutions to Brian's problem, this story by Bonnie Jo Campbell. I'm proud to say that Bonnie was once my student, although I would also say she brought it with her. I mean, I don't think there were, that, that she needed uh, to learn a lot from me. But I did give permission to my forms classes to make these kinds of experiments. And I was so pleased when I saw this story in one of, it wasn't, um, it wasn't one she was working on when she was with me, but it perfectly encapsulates this, um, this gesture. Um, has anybody read any of Bonnie Joe Campbell's work? Um, do you wanna, I, I, won't, I won't make you, do you wanna, do you know what her subject matter is? Do you want to say? And what's it about? It's kind of a Huck Finn from a girl's, there's a girl Huck Finn in, in a Robust, adventurous women. Um, I mean, even in her first collection, Bonnie is about six feet tall. Um, she's very tough. She's taken martial arts class, classes. She grew up on a farm. She's also extremely kind and, and, and approachable. Um, 
But um, where she comes from is not that different from rural West Virginia in its downside. It's, uh, I mean, a, a meth lab blows up on one of the streets around. I have a sister who lives out in the country, 75 miles from me. A meth lab is blowing up there every week. Um, and this story is about being married to a woman who you thought would um, get over her addiction, uh, although she already had this addiction. And she's not getting over it, so you feel like an idiot because everybody in your family told you not to marry her in the first place. Um, the, but this, but this story does not tell the story in a straightforward way. It's the solution. It's seven different solutions to Brian's problem, um, which include, I'll read the shortest one, wait until Connie comes back from the store, distract her with the baby, and then cut her meth with the Drano so that when she shoots it up, she dies. He's that angry with her. Um, what's the last one? The last one is probably what Brian is really going to do. Make dinner for yourself and your wife with a hamburger in the fridge. Sloppy Joe's maybe or a goulash with a stewed tomatoes your mother canned. Your mother, who, like the rest of the family, thinks your wife is just moody. You haven't told him the truth because it's too much to explain. And it's too much to explain that, yes, you knew she had this history when you married her, when she got pregnant, but you thought you could kick it together. You thought that love could mend all broken things. Wasn't that the whole business of love? Mix up some bottles of formula for later tonight when you will be sitting in the living room feeding the baby, watching the door of the bathroom, behind which your wife will be searching for a place in her vein that has not hardened or collapsed. When she finally comes out, brush her hair back from her face and try to get her to eat something. This tender little gesture. I mean, Bonnie really knows these people. They are in her family. That name... Um, Campbell, which in Michigan is pronounced Campbell, um, is like the name Atkins in West Virginia. I don't know about um, that. Is there are lots of nice Atkins, and there are lots of Atkins on the list of uh, prisoners in any West Virginia jail. It's just uh, it's a country name, and some of that family has is, has degenerated. Um, but it's very interesting. When I met Bonnie, she was in a a math education um, master's program. And I put an end to that. <laughs> After I saw the first story from her, I said, you got it. You, you have something more important to do, which you can do. I mean, she really, she, as I say, she brought it with her. She was already writing with incredible narrative muscle. And she, um, you know, since you've read um, Once Upon a River, she can write a conventional narrative just fine, but she. But occasionally, it occurs to her that there's another way to approach a problem. Um, I should really ask her how she came up with this. I, we're we're good friends. I never did, but um, but it's a perfect example of of ways that that more segmented approach could be applied. Here's another one. Do we still have time? Are we almost out of time? Oh, good. Okay. Here's an amazing thing. Um, this novel has not been published yet. Um, I probably should not. I, it was sent to me to blurb, and I am doing so. Um, I probably am not supposed to share it. 
But this story is just so too amazing, I have to tell you. This was my student who went to jail. He went to jail for murdering somebody. He was not a very good student. Um, and <coughs> I wasn't proud of him, and he wasn't proud of me. Um, uh, after he got out of school, he was selling sausage casings. It's really part of the, this, the plot of the, uh, the stories in this collection. Um, I think so far I haven't seen anything that looks invented to me, um, except the extremely interesting formal approach um, and the very educated way, I mean educated in the way that you're educating yourself as a writer, to pay attention to detail, to marshal uh, and put into wonderful sentences what he is observing around him. Um, anyway, I didn't have much hope for Curtis Dawkins, and um, he went back to the family business, selling sausage casings was the family business. Um, and he started to, on, on his business trips, um, shoot dope. Um, he married another one of my students and had three kids. This is really upsetting. Uh, the, the other student now teaches creative writing in Portland. She's a very good writer. Um, and I should have thought she was the one. Um, I, I mean, she's still, uh, I think, a writer who could really have a big future. But, um, but suddenly I get this book in the mail, and it's terrific. Um, I guess some people really need to go to jail to concentrate the mind, you know? Um, I, I, I once... Uh, um, well, went to Coldwater Prison for Women in Michigan to talk about my novel, She Drove Without Stopping, because, which, which ends with uh, the, the, the um, protagonist in jail in California for a drunk. She's arrested for being drunk, and she looks on it as really a co an accomplishment that she's landed in jail for this in an ironic sort of way. Um, and... I said to the women, um, I've, I really wanted to come here because I've had this fantasy that if I just can't get anything done, I'm so distractible, I could just commit a crime and go to jail, and then I could get a lot of writing done. And they said, no way, don't do it. They're calling you on the, on, the, uh, on the public address system every 15 minutes for something or other. You never have any privacy. You live in a dormitory. You don't want to go to jail, believe me. Well, so I believed them, but I have to say, for Curtis Dawkins, it must be part of what concentrated his mind. And here is a story that is basically um, an encyclopedic or a list story or a story. I, you know, you can um, expunge the, the list, but keep the grid, the idea of a grid. What this story is about, and it never explains itself, um, you just see it when you start reading it. It has no climax, no arc, just a kind of saturation point. It does have a refrain. Who is this? And another refrain. Hey, it's me. It's um, the telephone calls that I think, while well, he was in county jail, they must have a, a access to a phone all the time. Um, and it's, uh, it's free to the prisoner if you can get somebody to accept, to, to to accept the collect call. Um, and that's what this story consists of, call after call. Um, 
Who is this? Hey, it's me. I don't know nobody in prison. I'm not in prison yet. I'm in jail. The two are very different, but people think they're the same. Why'd you call? I'm bored. So am I. I don't know what to do with myself since I retired. What did you retire from? Had my own auto body shop, insurance work, paint and detailing, or I'd buy total cars real cheap and then go and straighten the frame, rebuild it from scratch, basically. Pretty good money in that, taking them to the auction. But I had a heart attack and a bypass, so I sold it. Now my wife and me breed these fancy chickens that lay blue eggs. That sounds nice, I guess. We're starting to hate each other, my wife and me, about as much as I hate those friggin' chickens. I told her, if I can't work no more, and she's going to have to get a job, get out of the house during the day, or I might end up right there with you. And it, uh, I mean, the conversations are, some of them occasionally hits a religious person. She read for a long time from Revelations, an old lady with a slow, soft voice. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb. Uh, the story incorporates... A, uh, I mean, it's a list in its form without saying that it's a list, but it incorporates a list. Um, <coughs> I've always felt guilty for not calling Kitty Cat again. That's the first person he calls. And um, while he's taking a nap, the, um, the maintenance comes through and paints over the, the wall where, pe where prisoners list the good numbers. There are always a few people who will accept most calls for one reason or another, even though it costs about $6. But he loses Kitty Cat's number. I've always felt guilty for not calling Kitty Cat again, like I've hurt his feelings. I try it every day, 349-something. 349-1234. The person at the number you dialed did not accept or the call was received by an automated answering device. 3491235. The person at the number you dialed did not. 3491236. The number you dialed is a non working number. 3491237. And on like that. I don't have certain numbers to call, you see. I have every number. 3491238. The number you dialed is a non working number. And on. Tomorrow I'll start with 1240. And then there's another call. I mean, it's, am it's amazing. Um, it's amazing that the calls go through it all. And the, the thing that's so um, remarkable about this book is it just turns out to be about human loneliness one way or another and the impossibility of ever really getting along well with anybody unless you are a more enlightened person than most of us are. Um, it's about human loneliness, hope and hopelessness, reaching out, contact and losing contact over and over and over again. And really all the stories are like that too. I think this will be a big book because uh, um, as the editor who sent me this book said, it's high time for a book that explains American prison to, in, a, in an artful way to the public. Um, so who would have thought? But here it is. And it's really a book that in many ways um, I mean, what did he learn? He learned to leave out all the, um, all the um, <coughs> once upon a times and, and this is the way it ended and, and it's just about these gestures over and over again and it works. Such strange people he meets in jail. Um, just to mention a couple of other um, books where you can look at um, somebody working with this encyclopedic or segmenting or modular gesture. Um, 
this is one of the most brilliant novels. It's not exactly a novel, it's a memoir. Who knows what Primo Levi writes? Do you know his work? Um, he was won the Nobel Prize, an Italian writer. He was actually a chemist by trade, uh, or by training, um, who ended up in Auschwitz for a year um, towards the end of the war and managed to survive. Um, and you can, what shines out of his work is this determination to remain calm, rational, uh, hu uh, and humanitarian in the, um, in the sense of humane letters, the, in the best part of humanity, um, in the face of having had this experience. Um, and to write about it in that way. Uh, so he tries various kinds of organizational schemes. And this one, I think a lot of people would, would say is the most amazing of them. It's called The Periodic Table. He uh, tells the story. And once again, um, it's not an exhaustive book. Look, it's not even fat. Um, he's not trying. Uh, the Periodic Table supposedly um, gives the, the values of every element in the chemical um, compendium. Um, so there is an idea about it. Uh, he's using this, the, the metaphor of an exhaustiveness or of a complete alphabet or a complete encyclopedia. But um, once, he ha once he lists an element, um, he thinks of its properties and in a, very, in a way that only a scientist could do. So it's, it's not just, um, I, I mean, I could not sit down here and organize my life into the principles of automotive mechanics because I don't know anything about automotive mechanics, although I wish I did. Um, I might be able to do it with food. Um, I might be able, it would be interesting to think what things I could do it with. But, um, but he could do it with chemistry. He loved chemistry. He, he loved chemistry all of his life. He thought that in some way it stood so well for um, the, the material, the materiality of the world and its, its, its beautiful rationality and changeability at the same time in some way. Um, so anyway, this book is organized into, into Argon, hydrogen, zinc, iron, potassium, nickel, lead, mercury, and so on. And um, but each of them, I mean, in each of them, he works with the 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 element in a scientific way, but then starts telling the stories of people that he's known and the ways that their properties as human beings in some way correspond to the this element. Uh, and it's just it's beautiful. Iron is about a uh, a friend that he made who became a partisan, a farm boy from the Tyrol, um, who was as different from him as he could possibly be and did not survive the war, who in a way he talked into, and this is one of the things that's, I can hardly talk about this book without starting to cry, so I'll try not to do it. But um, he, he, in a way, just in the process of their normal conversations, he talks the this man into thinking about fascism, about what's wrong with it. And he becomes a dedicated anti-fascist, and then he ends up dying in a horrible way. Um, and um, the, that's, that's iron. That's what I feel, you know, this uh, simple, more um, 
less exotic chemical than most. Um, here's how that chapter ends. Today I know that it is a hopeless task to try to dress a man in words, make him live again on the printed page, especially a man like Sandro. He was not the sort of person you can tell stories about. Well, of course he is, because he's just done it. Nor to whom one erects monuments, he who laughed at all monuments. He lived completely in his deeds, and when they were over, nothing of him remains, nothing but words precisely. It's just, uh, precise is a good word for this to end on, because there is the sense of pre precision. Uh, as I say, there's something about his work that so honors the very best in, um, in Western thinking, insofar as it's ever created anything useful, valuable, um, precious, worth saving. Um, and yet he's telling, this, telling stories that destroyed people just by knowing about them. I mean, never mind what happened to them personally, just seeing these things. You know, there was an extremely high suicide rate among survivors of Auschwitz or other concentration camps 15, 10, 6, 20 years later. And some people think that he committed suicide. I'm not convinced that he did, but he, he died in a fall um, that may or may not have been suicide. So. Primo, spelled just as you would think, P-R-I-M-O, Levi, L-E-V-I. And this is just an amazing, amazing book. I think we're running out of time. Uh, I, 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 I want to say, here's a book that most of you have probably encountered, Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried. One of the interesting things about it is that this was a, this was a second attempt. He wrote first a quite conventional novel about his role in the war, um, but he hated it. I think it was published, because I, uh, in fact, I know it was. I've never seen it, but a friend of mine from the same English department I taught and read it and said, you know, it wasn't a bad book. He, he didn't give it enough credit. But the point is, it didn't satisfy what he was, he was looking for a way to tell a collective story um, and to get at the essence of the stupidity, absurdity, of this, of this particular war. And so this is what he came up with, and it's a fantastic um, use, uh, although you don't see lines about it, and things are not numbered one, two, three, four, you can feel the list coming right from the title, the things they carried. Um, I'm not gonna read from it because we are so short of time, but, um, but, it's, but as an example of organic form, um, that a writer develops from frustration with the conventional form of, frust uh, of storytelling. Um, when all the same there's a need one way or another to package um, all kinds of overwhelming, very personal and also um, historical knowledge about a particular subject. Wonderful. Um, this was a book that I mentioned yesterday. This is the German woman writer I translate. Hermina is the woman's life in encounters with animals. She was a farm woman um, who just could not manage um, animals from the start. So her father basically hated her. It felt, uh, she's too stupid to mind cows. Send her off to school, cursed father. Um, 
And this is a, a, a history of encounters with animals. Uh, it's not sentimental. There are very few pets in it. Yeah. Um, Maria Beig, B-E-I-G, B-E-I-G. Um, Karen, if you would like to have this book, you just let me know. <laughs> I have a lot of them. You know how it is. When you <laughs> but, it, no, it's a really fascinating book. Um, they're not very happy encounters, most of them, um, although they, some are. And, but what's interesting about it is it tells her whole life, from even before she was born. She was one of 13 children. Her mother had just lost a child before she was conceived and just could not like her. Um, I mean, eventually she kind of came around towards her because she had some special characteristics as a child. After all, she was the only one of these, these 13 children. I can never remember if it was 13 or 14 because it's different. Mm -hmm. The book is one more or less. Um, um, she was obviously a more sensitive child with a certain kind of responsiveness that some of the others didn't have. But, um, but this story tells, um, tells her whole life through a nervous breakdown. By, and by the way, this will give you um, hope, some of you. She didn't start writing until she was 60. And she managed to write. Uh, that's why her book, books are nice and short. That's why I like to translate them, too. Um, but, uh, but she actually published um, something like 12 books while she was still writing. She's, now, she's still alive. She's 95 plus and um, um, lives in a senior place. But she's with it. Uh, she, but she stopped writing just a few years ago. Um, and... Uh, is really considered, I think, the principal writer of these Catholic farmsteads, so cruel to women because women were not allowed to inherit. Uh, you know, um, the, the men went to war. Uh, many of them didn't come back, but the women still couldn't inherit. They just basically were hired help on these farms. And if they didn't want to get married themselves for any of the many reasons that people and I might not want to get married, well, tough luck. And, uh, and the stories are, are about that in a grim way. Um, the, uh, the protagonist of Hermina eventually gets married, but it's not a perfect marriage by any means. She has a nervous breakdown after she gives up teaching, and then she's rescued by, by a, what might be an imaginary or a real encounter with an owl in the woods. It's just fascinating, really. And all of the chapters are very short. I think the longest one is five pages. Many are less than a page. So it's exemplary. If you want to look at somebody, somebody's um, organic mode of organization using a segmented approach. Um, what I would say to you in closing is just think of I mean, if you want to try this, think, what are your obsessions? I mean, what comes back again and again for you? Where is that natural refrain for you? And you don't have to have the answer. Who is this? Hey, it's me. I mean, that doesn't answer anything. But, you, but, it's, but it suggests the kind of loneliness that this book is about. This, uh, and also the frustration of ever, find, of ever really making contact. Um, you, you need to... Find what is, I suppose, an, essentially a metaphor, and then think of it in all of its variants and find some way using the thing that you are adept in that other people aren't, which is words, to organize this subject.
and I'd love to hear from you about whatever you come up with. Try. Um, also, although I've never read a really good one, I'd love to see one of these days an ABC that somehow really works as a as a piece of fiction. Yeah. Sort of uh, texts like that arranged in time increments. Um, in time increments. Oh my God! Like there is a fantastic or... one by um, what is his name now? He's a Native American writer, Sherwin. Sherman uh, Alexi. That's right. And I'm going to forget the name of the story, but I could look it up in a minute. Um, it's. Uh, it's a quest story in which he has only so much time to accomplish a certain thing. And every one of these, it's like 24 days. Um, yeah, it's, and, uh, you know, actually I hadn't even thought of that, but that's a very good um, example of the kind of organization that I'm talking about. It's probably one reason that I love the story. Because he also tells you so much about Native American culture, about his individual life, about about the the ways that um, that Native Americans who don't have money, who have left the reservation, are um, are are dying on the streets basically, and yet know each other, welcome each other, have a beer with each other, um, steal seventy five cents with each other. Um, but they all have the common a sort of a, a nexus of myth that they share with each other. It's so interesting, such a wonderful story. Oh God. I'm so sorry that I can't immediately think of the title of it. I'll look it up before I leave and tell you. Um, well, that's an interesting. I mean, in a way, you, you're you're pushing um, the escape from chronology back towards chronology. But you're right; it were it actually works more as a list. You would never think to yourself, "Oh, oh, I am following a chronology here." You do feel like you're on a quest of some kind, but you know perfectly well that this quest is going to be futile in some way. So, Other questions? Anybody want to? Well, I think, I, th I think I'm supposed to let you go now. <laughs> <laughs>